0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you on a weekly journey through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so grab them and start a little group. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Numbers, an important historical book in the Old Testament that has great relevance to the Christian life. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're starting into Numbers 22 through 24, the story of Balaam and Balak. After dealing with the Edomites, the Canaanites, and the Amorites in Numbers chapters 20 and 21, Their travels come to an end. This is the third encampment on the third leg of their journey in the wilderness. They settle in and they have an encounter with the Moabites and the Midianites. As before with other encampments, there's revelation and there are events that are similar to the first two times we've seen them encamp at Sinai and Kadesh. And each of those three episodes uh, concludes with a great apostasy. Uh, Exodus 32 and the golden calf in the first instance... Numbers 14, when they rebel against the Lord and refuse to go into the promised land. And then next week, we'll talk about Numbers 25, when sexual immorality and idolatry bring devastation to the community. This story has a lot of pop. It ranges from patriarchal promises to messianic prophecies. God and the biblical writers find it useful. There are 11 references to this story in five Old Testament and three New Testament books. And, of course, it's popular and famous for its talking donkey. Here's what Gordon Winham says about it. The charming naivete of these stories disguises a brilliance of literary composition and profound theological reflection. The narrative is, is at once both very funny and deadly serious. The stupidity and stubbornness of the human characters, Balaam and Balak, is accentuated by the behavior of the donkey, This animal, proverbial for its dullness and obstinacy, is shown to have more spiritual insight than the super prophet from Mesopotamia. Yet this numbskulled, money-grubbing, heathen seer is inspired by the Spirit of God and ends up giving us truly messianic prophecies. The drama, irony, and paradoxes of this story fascinate and perplex. So let's see what all the buzz is about. We'll start in chapter 22 verses 1 through 3. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now, Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. So, verse 1, they arrive at the Jordan across from Jericho. Of course, if you know where the story is going, that's the first battle in the Promised Land in Joshua 6. And they're in the plains of Moab, and this is where they run into the Moabites. Verse 2, Balak, who in verse 4 is defined as the king of Moab, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And in verse 3, we're told that Moab was terrified and filled with dread because there were so many Israelites. There's a couple of ironies here. Of course, Israel had sought peace with the Amorites. It's only when the Amorites attack them that Israel responds in kind. And as with Edom and Ammon, Moab was to be left alone. These were Lot's descendants. Edom was uh, Esau and his descendants, and so it's a family matter, and they're to be left alone in God's economy. But if you attack, then you're going to be attacked in kind. It reminds me of people who always seem to make things difficult on themselves, and they seem to like drama. The best answer for the king of Moab would have been to let things alone, and things would have been much better for him and his people. Maybe they should give thanks for Israel vanquishing their enemy. They didn't get along with the Amorites, it turns out. Or maybe they looked to become Israel's friends. Instead, they did pursue a very different path. Verses 4 through 7, the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zimpor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Verse 4 opens with figurative, poetic language to describe Israel's power and their powerlessness. And this is correct, but it's not relevant if they make peace with them. Remember, these are peoples on the east side of the Jordan River, and the Transjordan peoples are not going to be kicked out of their land unless they cause trouble for Israel, as happens here. Verses 4 and 7 mention a Moab-Midian alliance, probably with the Midianites who are living there. Now, it's not explicit in the scriptures that the Midianites are protected, but they're within Moab, so that would lead to protection. But they were also presumably exempt because of past alliances. Midian is where Jethro comes from that had been so helpful to Moses and where Moses had gotten a wife. So the family connections here probably would have prevented the Midianites from being attacked as well. Verse 5, Balak sends messengers. Verse 7, they're identified as elders. Verse 8, they're identified as princes to summon Balaam in verse 6 to put a curse on the Israelites, and then verse 7 mentions a fee for divination. So in essence, he's a prophet for hire. He's a hired gun with the word, reminds us of Hebrews 4.12, but the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, and they're looking to use his word as a way to attack Israel. Now we can infer from the text that Balaam is a very big deal. They're going near the Euphrates River, so this is a 400-mile trip each way. Outside the scriptures, we know Balaam is a big deal as well because some of his non-biblical prophecies are preserved. Here we get the why, verses 5 and 6, of why they're going to such an extent to get Balaam's help. Balak says, they're too powerful, literally numerous. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out. That his military might by itself would be insufficient, but perhaps along with Balaam's assistance, he could be successful. The end of verse 6 is very interesting. Those who bless are blessed, those who curse are cursed. Very much like the language in Genesis 12 with God to Abraham, Matthew Henry says, in effect, he makes him his God by the great power he attributes to his words. Now, words were taken very seriously in that culture. We know that from the blessings and the vows that we read throughout the Old Testament in particular. And so we see Balak doing the same thing with Balaam here. This is also an interesting moment because it mimics and foreshadows Israel's later reliance on government and military power and idolatry, rather than doing what they had been charged with doing, which is repenting and turning back to and depending on God. Now broadly, it's interesting that Balak tries this. Rather than pure atheism, he believes there's something to the supernatural, or true faith. And he's putting a lot of effort into it. He's passionately investing in what turns out to be a mediocre faith and hedging his bets. Either way, he's hoping the profit will work for him. And I think that's a lot of people's response to religion. Some people completely ignore it. Some people pursue the true faith. But many people make significant investments in faiths that are mediocre and false. One last observation for the bigger picture, as with Ruth, Rahab, and others, Balak has an opportunity to encounter the God of Israel. The Old Testament is not just the story of God with Israel. And this underlines God's justice and the question of what about those who haven't heard. God's going to find a way to make his presence available to everyone, and we see that here with Balak. So let's see how Balaam responds, verses 8 through 14. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message The people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Verse 8 gives us a promising start with his reply that he will only give the answer the Lord gives me. Is he a believer? Probably not based on the later verses. He's apparently a polytheist who typically spoke for other gods. The narration may already be giving us a clue to this by using different words for God. Verse 8 is the Lord, that's the term Balaam uses, but then verse 9, the reference is to God. Another hint that's more indirect is given his knowledge about God in Israel, he would have utterly refused this offer from the beginning, but of course he doesn't do that here. Verses 9 through 11 is a dialogue between God and Balaam which recounts Balak's request. It's interesting that God portrays himself as not knowing what's going on, and Balaam's reply indicates the same. It's a very human conversation. Note also that Balaam is not surprised or alarmed to be talking to God. And he's not going to be alarmed to talk with a donkey later. So again, this is all very foreign to our modern experience. The punchline here is that God speaks to and through Balaam and later through a donkey for his purposes. And it's interesting that he had only spoken to Moses and Aaron among the Israelites. And even though Balaam was later going to mess with Israel, he still sees fit to talk with them here. Verse 12 is the bottom line. Answer and command from God, do not go. You must not put a curse on the Israelites because they are blessed. Again, language very much like Genesis 12. Matthew Henry says here, "...Israel had often provoked God in the wilderness, yet he will not suffer their enemies to curse them." Verses 13 and 14, we have a so far, so good sort of answer, but not really. If you look at the communication from Balaam to the messengers to Balak, both are communicated poorly and inaccurately. First, Balaam omits God's command not to curse them. Maybe this is a matter of pride. It's difficult for him to admit his inability, especially since he was probably known as a man of prophecy and action. Balaam also omits God's identification of Israel as blessed, which backdoor implies his willingness to curse. In other words, if it weren't for God, I might be willing to do this. And it invites temptation of further bargaining versus just telling them all and refusing this from the outset. And then notice that the messengers switch all of this from God's will to Balaam's. Did they see through him, or did they ignore the spoken role of God in Balaam's decision? In any case, it implies that additional compensation might sway him. Winnem summarizes this moment nicely as the passage continues to unfold. Balaam is thus trapped between the demands of Balak and the commands of God. It is this conflict that sustains the whole drama that follows. But before we get into more of that drama, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentucky Anna's Christian Community Bulletin. It's available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, the station and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Numbers 22 through 24, the story of Balaam and Balak. In the previous segment, we had covered Balak's first attempt to get Balaam to curse Israel. That had not gone well, but that takes us to verses 15 through 19. Then Balak sent other officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first, that came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says, Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and will do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God, Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. So Balak's second attempt includes verse 15's other princes, more numerous and more distinguished. And then verse 16's urgency adds to the importance of the task and Balaam's role in it, which would feed into his pride. And then verse 17, I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. So what's going on here? Balak maybe is starting cheap. He makes a reasonable offer, but then looks to extend it. Or we can read this as Balak is more clever than that. Matthew Henry says he laid a bait not only for Balaam's covetousness, but for his pride and ambition. So maybe he's laying a bit of a trap here. It's also in all of this, he seems quite uninterested in input. It's not like he goes to Balaam and asks for feedback. He seems to already know the answer to his own question. And those kind of people can be very frustrating to deal with. Then we get Balaam's answer in verse 18, even if you do blank, I can't do anything to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. So, an extreme and impressive answer. No matter what, I won't move at all from God's word. And we can interpret this as the best possible answer, or perhaps, to be more cynical, it's priming the pump. Again, looking to, to do some bargaining here. The reference to the Lord my God calls for an even stronger affiliation, And here he does admit his inability to bless and curse. But to be a little more cynical, we've got the phrase to go beyond, which speaks to false prophecies of commission. It may leave room for the omission of blessings from Israel. He can't go beyond, but that doesn't mean he needs to say everything that God gives him. And the more troubling piece of this whole thing is in verse 19, he keeps them around instead of sending them home. Now one answer to this that's positive is that he's offering, you know, a great level of hospitality and he's seeking God's guidance, but it also hints that he's double-minded. It could be a negotiation tool, and he already knows the answer to this. He's going to ask God again about this as if he might want to change his mind. All of this is also flirting with disaster. We see an inconsistency here between verses 18 and 19, and the application to us here is that when God has already revealed his truth, you don't go back to God in prayer about that. It's already been revealed. We know the truth from his word or from his spirit, and just go with that. Don't entertain doubts or other conditions. You've already been given the answer. It's testing God to continue to go back to him on it. Continuing in verse 20, that night, God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went. So this is a strange passage. Overnight, he gets God's instructions. Verse 20, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Verse 21 is seeming obedience from Balaam. But then early in verse 22, the seemingly paradoxical, but God was angry when he went. Why? Why? I think the best answer here is that God judges not just actions and words, but motives. First Corinthians 4 5 is excellent on this. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time, wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. At that time each will receive their praise from God. Think about parents with children and spouses with each other. It's not so much what we do and say sometimes, but the motives behind it and how those are discerned. I think the direct answer here that's most likely is that Balaam seems to resist, but apparently yields to the temptation. Matthew Henry says it is an easy thing for bad men to speak good words and with their mouth to make a show of piety. There's no judging of men by their words. God knows the heart. If this is the case, I think we can also imagine Balaam's probable surprise at being apprehended on the basis of his motives. It's also possible to read all of this as an indirect way for Balaam to get a bigger fee, that it's all just part of a big negotiation plan. In any case, Balaam's problem is identified later as greed in the text, chapter 31, And then in miscellaneous references in the Old and the New Testament, the Life Application Bible says the deception of maintaining an outward facade of spirituality over a corrupt inward life. Balaam was a man ready to obey God's command as long as he could profit from doing so. So what would we hope for here from Balaam? I think one is that he does not express abhorrence at Balak's second offer. Again, this may indicate that internally he was excited about it. And we might have hoped that he would argue with God's instructions in verse 20. Now, that may seem contradictory, but what have we seen from Moses or thinking back to Abraham about the encounters that God wants with his people? Some dialogue, even some questioning, some pushback, as Moses and Abraham do, is the most desirable thing. And Balaam just seems to go along to get along which indicates that his motives are not pure. One of the things that's tough here is that God is clearly using Balaam, but the text underlines the inspiration for the oracles, not the holiness of the speaker. Those are two different things. As Wenham puts it, the ability to declare God's word is not necessarily a sign of Balaam's holiness, only that God can use anyone to be his spokesman. And from where the text is going next, we know that Balaam is akin to a donkey, So, I think the best way to read this is that God is adjusting, so to speak, to Balaam's desires. God gives him the freedom to sin, but he's still angry with him. Just because God allows a sin doesn't mean that he doesn't have wrath toward it. So, let's read verses 22 through 31. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, It turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right nor to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the row with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. So, the passage starts with God opposing Balaam after verse 19 and the sin of hospitality, so to speak, after the change of plans in verse 20, and then after Balaam's eager obedience, presumably driven by greed in verse 21, God confronts him directly here. God's anger in verse 22 leads to the angel of the Lord standing on the road to oppose Balaam. The word can be translated as his adversary. The Hebrew word here is actually Satan, which means opponent or adversary. Matthew Henry says this angel was an adversary to Balaam because Balaam counted him his adversary. A fancy word for this is theophany. It's a manifestation of God's presence, only visible to the donkey. Apparently, the two servants in verse 22 and the princes who are along for the ride with from Balak don't see any of this. In a sense, God meets Balaam when he is alone. So this leads to the confrontation between Balaam and his donkey in verses 23 through 27 in terms of action. Verse 23, the donkey turns off the road. Balaam beats her. Verses 24 and 25, the donkey's pressed close to the wall on a narrow path, crushing or scraping Balaam's foot. Again, he beats her. Verses 26 and 27, the donkey now lays down when the angel stood in a narrow place where there was no room to get around. And again, Balaam beats his donkey. Each time the path gets narrower, escape is more difficult. God is squeezing Balaam through the donkey and through the path that he has chosen. In a word we see here exceptionally cruel treatment of an animal, especially one he was familiar with and should have grown fond of. Proverbs 12:10 says the righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. And another irony here is that Balaam is not at all prophetic here. His supposed ability to see things uh, does not hold at all. Then in verses 28 through 30, we have Balaam going up against the donkey in terms of debate. Verse 28, we are introduced to the donkey as a talking animal. What have I done to you? This is a great miracle, but if God can create the universe, then this is kid's play for him. And it is a provocative question, which sets up the silly answer from Balaam in verse 29 and ultimately God's response. Balaam's answer in verse 29, you've made a fool of me. I a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Of course, this is high comedy here. He's talking to a donkey. He had the privilege to talk with God, but now he's reduced to talking and arguing with an animal. And this leads to a range of ironies. First of all, the angel actually has a sword. Second irony, that the donkey isn't making him a fool. He is a fool. His pride is getting in his way. He's probably worried about what others are thinking. The third irony, I would kill you. This underlines his impotence. He can't kill his donkey, but he's going to curse Israel in God's face his anger, and his passion. What would it accomplish to kill his donkey? That would make his life a whole lot worse. And of course, this leads to the final irony that the donkey had actually saved his life. In a nutshell, we have two talking donkeys here. In verse 30, the animal donkey responds, and not just with talk, but advanced logic and persuasive reasoning. Don't you know me? Is this typical? And Balaam has to admit, no, he's getting put in place by his donkey. Winham observes that up to this point, Balaam has been Portrayed as a man of great spiritual stature, here his spiritual blindness and powerlessness are disclosed. The donkey was caught three times between the angel's sword and Balaam's stick. Soon Balaam will find himself trapped three times between Balak's demands and God's prohibition. Then in verse 31, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel standing in the road. This is reminiscent of Joshua 5, right before the battle of Jericho, Balaam bows low and falls face down, contrary to his earlier pride. So, of course, the ultimate irony here is that an animal and a donkey to boot could see what an internationally famous prophet or seer could not see. Balaam is more stubborn than his donkey. He was blind to the spiritual reality. He was blinded by ambition and greed. Verse 28, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. Verse 31, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. For us as well, it's God's prevenient grace that reaches out to us when we cannot see not giving us the punishment we deserve, and extending to us an amazing grace that we do not deserve. Balaam has his donkey, but God has his own donkey here in Balaam, and God treats him far better and with far more patience than he deserves. Thank God for mercy and grace. Time to take a break. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Right now we're in Numbers 22 through 24, the story of Balaam and Balak. And in the last segment, we had finished with chapter 22, verse 31 when the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, when the angel of the Lord was standing in front of him. This was after a discussion that Balaam had with his donkey. So we pick things up in verses 32 through 35. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me now if you are displeased i will go back the angel of the lord said to balaam go with the men but speak only what i tell you so balaam went with balak's officials so the angel of the lord speaks opening with a rhetorical question why have you beaten your donkey it's an interesting but telling start to the confrontation verse 32 continues with a prophetic condemnation of the prophet i have come here to oppose you because your path is reckless can also be translated perverse or contrary. Then there's a commendation for the donkey. If she had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you. But then the irony later in verse 33, but I would have spared her. It's ironic that the crushing of Balaam's foot and so on saved his life, but only got the donkey three beatings and a death threat. Matthew Henry says, so angry are we apt to be at that which, though a present uneasiness, yet is a real kindness. Balaam's response is to plead ignorance, and then he says, if you're displeased, then I can go back. Is this humility, ignorance, false pride, etc.? Again, we're not sure. He does say, I've sinned and I will go back, which is a picture of repentance, albeit under a gun or sword. But given later events, it's probably false or temporary repentance. Matthew Henry says there's no sign that his heart is turned. If his hands are tied, he cannot help it. There seems to be a reformation of life, but what will this avail if there's no renovation of the heart? And so the angel of the Lord replies, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. The reiteration of this instruction and Balaam's behavior to this point imply that Balaam would have been disobedient without this intervention. He needed this to execute his task properly. All of this also communicates the seriousness of the command and the moment, and later Balaam does follow all of this to the letter. We see also Balaam's obedience to end things in verse 35. There are some important lessons here in our own lives for the figurative donkeys that are put in our path. The first is that the extraordinary, or even the ordinary, should get our attention at times. When we see signals of God's providence, or we receive counsel of colleagues and friends, don't reject it so quickly, don't push on it, especially when it's out of pride. Let's give it our attention as appropriate, somebody, God or human, is probably trying to get our attention. Second, the rare failures of any of God's creatures should evoke in us an especially patient response. We should not kick the dog then. So, great article here in World Magazine from 1998 by Jay Greeland called Donkey Talk. I have a friend who got a pancake one time that had a frowning face baked into it, and that got her attention. And I have another friend who threw a cat out of anger, and then the Cat continued to limp for a long time after that. It was not a physical disability, but the best the vet could uh, guess it was psychological. But in any case, it was a memorial to my friend's anger. And after that, uh, he turned aside from his anger in a powerful way. The cat was his donkey, so to speak, and it changed his life. And the third point is that sometimes we're called to be the donkey, and so we should have courage to step into that moment, even though we can expect grief as the donkey, even though we're likely to be the killed messenger or the threatened donkey. We still need to have the courage and the wisdom to step into those moments as we're called. Okay, verses 36 through 41. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied, but I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath Huzath. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Balaam and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he could see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. So, in verses 36 and 37, we see Balak's eagerness and anxiety and his frustration revealed with three questions. He's in a hurry. He's probably used to people responding to his power, but Balaam doesn't seem particularly interested in that. Notice that Balak goes out to the edge of his territory. The Arnon River was at the boundary. Verse 38, we have a faithful, fearful response from Balaam. Basically, I'm here now. In fact, almost sounds irritated here. And then he asks a rhetorical question, but can I say just anything? Before answering his own question, I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. He seems sobered here or even resigned to his duty, and he does use the word of God and give all the credit and the glory to God rather than shifting the blame to God. Verse 39, we have travel. Verse 40, we have sacrifice by Balak, not to God, but to some unknown gods. Then we have some more travel in verse 41. Bamoth Baal means high places of Baal, which is a false god, and notice that they can see the Israelite troops, presumably to have more knowledge and power to curse them. In chapter 23 verses 1 through 6 we have another sacrifice i'm not going to read the passage but we'll talk through some things this one is directed by balaam it's performed by balak and balaam and it's to god we're told that in verse 4. This supersedes, in fact, ignores the sacrifice of Balak in chapter 22, verse 40. There are a few other interesting details here. This sort of sacrifice is consistent with what would happen in Near Eastern religion, but the reference to seven three times certainly gives it a Jewish flavor. Verse 3, Balaam talks about, Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me, perhaps maybe hedging the bets, especially given God's recent anger with him. Later in verse 3, he went off alone to a barren height, To get alone with God, that's a good sign. So he's looking for and then receives a message from God in verses four and five. So that takes us to the first oracle, which is on population in verses seven through twelve. Then Balaam spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. He answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So in verses 7 through 10, we have the oracle itself. Verse 8, how can I curse or denounce those whom God has not cursed or denounced? It shows his impotency to do anything other than what God has given him, and it's also a good theology. Verse 9, a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. So a nice reference to holiness, which is a key theme about Israel's purpose and the way they're supposed to live their lives. Verse 10 opens with, who can count the dust of Jacob or the fourth part of Israel? This is figurative language for Israel being innumerable, powerful, and blessed. And in the end of verse 10, the death of the righteous, may my end be like theirs. Well, Unfortunately, that didn't happen. We'll see that in chapter 31 later. It is early implied evidence of knowing about the afterlife. Perhaps this would be an assurance to Moses who would soon die, but unfortunately it didn't turn out this way. As Matthew Henry puts it, he shows his opinion of religion to be better than his resolution. There are many who desire to the death of the righteous, but do not endeavor to live the life of the righteous. Verse 11, we have Balak's reaction, which is hilarious. I brought you here to curse them and all you've done is bless them. You know, what happened to Balak depending on God? Well, apparently only if he received the desired results. And that's how people approach God many times. They don't follow him on God's terms, but on their own terms. And then we have the great rhetorical response by Balaam, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So then in verse 13, it says, Then Balak said to him, Come with me to another place where you can see them. You will not see them all, but only the outskirts of their camp. And from there, curse them for me. Very interesting, because the going to another place is an indication of polytheism, that God is only a local God with regional impact, only over those that the seer sees. Again, Balak is missing the point. He does not understand the greatness and the goodness of this God. The Life Application Bible says, changing location won't change God's will. The problems are rooted in us are not solved by a change of scenery. Again, we do the same sort of thing. The truth is right there, but we try to look at it from a different angle or go at it from a different place, but the answer is still the same. Eugene Peterson says, can't you just see them hustling from one hilltop to another, trying to find the right combination of mountain and curse to make it work? At some level, we have a combination of desperation being morons and just trying to bargain here, but there is an application to Satan and our worldly enemies trying to use other angles, so to speak, in trying to take us down. Balak wants to manipulate God's word for power, but ignores it when it's not what he wants to hear. Balaam listens to it, but wants to manipulate it for profit. In contrast, we might consider God the great manipulator. He is sovereign over history, although he does grant free will. Verse 14 lays out the altar and the sacrifice. Verse 15, again, the instruction to wait here. And verse 16, the conversation again between God and Balaam. So this leads to the second oracle, which is about power. Balaam goes off, returns. At the end of verse 17, Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? So it's interesting that Balak that Balak is so eager to hear. And of course, this should be our inquiry as well. We should be passionate to hear what the Lord will say, and then unlike Balak, to actually follow it. So in verses 18 through 24, we have a bigger and better oracle, including a number of details. A command to arise in verse 18, which points to reverence that Balak should have for God. Verse 19, God fulfills promises. He does not lie or change his mind. When he speaks, he acts, and his promises are always fulfilled. Before Balaam had said he couldn't alter God's word, now that God wouldn't alter his own words. Again, a great moment in theology. And then there are the applications that follow. Verse 20, Balaam must bless. Verse 21, God is with Israel through the tabernacle, but beyond that, he's not just blessing them from afar. He actually is with them. That's how much he cares about them. Some cool phrases here, the strength of a wild ox in verse 22. Verse 24, rise like a lioness. Verse 23, see what God has done. That's what will be said of Israel and Jacob. The bottom line here is in verse 23 that sorcery and divination will be ineffective against israel balak's efforts will be for naught one other cool phrase here is in verse 21 the shout of the king this is the first time god is identified as their king verse 25 we get balak's reactions neither curse them at all nor bless them at all you know here nothing would have been better than something if you can't say something bad about someone don't say anything at all and in verse 26 balaam responds did i not tell you i must do whatever the lord says So verse 27, they go to another place. Verse 28, now they're overlooking the wasteland, and the argument here is perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. It's followed then by sacrifice number three in verses 29 through 30. This sets the table for Oracle number three, but before we get there, we need to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Right now, we're in Numbers 24, wrapping up the story of Balaam and Balak in chapters 22 through 24. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24 says, Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as at other times, but turned his face toward the wilderness. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him, and he spoke his message. If you go back to chapter 23, verse 23, it says, There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. And Balaam seems to take that to heart here by turning aside from divination and turning his face toward God in the wilderness. As a result in verse 2, the Spirit of God comes upon him. So beyond merely words being given to him, something much more powerful has happened here. First of all, this prepares the audience for an even greater revelation. This is prophetic, looking into the future, very visionary, rather than merely forthtelling truths that are theologically accurate about a God that Balak doesn't understand. Now, as we discussed before, this is no clear indication of Balaam's holiness. In fact, from the rest of the text, we would not infer that. But here, Balaam is in a relatively good spot. He merely turns his face toward the desert rather than going off alone as he had before. Maybe it's not necessary if you have the proper focus. Getting alone is useful, but it's not required to be close to God. In particular, because he's turned away from evil or the mixed methods of his polytheism, by getting out of God's way, God takes it a step greater in terms of the revelation that he provides to Balaam. It's also worth noting that this parallels Jesus in the desert. Remember, they went to three different places, and there were three different temptations. And Balaam here, at least at this point, is responding well also. Late in verse 3 and into verse 4, the revelation, the oracle begins, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eye seeks clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened A lot of good stuff here, especially given the irony and the troubles of the blindness that Balaam had in chapter 22, and then the prostrate in verse 4 is in opposition to the blindness and the pride that he had had previously. The details of the oracle itself are in verses 5 through 9, a reference to beauty in verse 5, a reference to abundance in verses 6 and into 7, a reference to a king, which points forward to Saul, David, and eventually to Christ exaltation, and a favorable comparison to King Agag, which is 300 years later in 1 Samuel 15. One can take this as a popular name for Amalekite kings, as we know the references to Pharaoh, or it could simply be an amazing prophecy. Verses 8 and 9 have some cool references to oxen and lions. Verse 8 refers to the deliverance from Egypt, that he devours hostile nations and breaks their bones to pieces. But then the climax is at the end of verse 9, that the blessing-cursing formula is in line with Genesis twelve three, but actually reversing what Balak wants. He's not only blessing Israel at this point, but cursing Balak. And you know, Balak is not going to be happy with that. So that takes us to verses 10 through 14. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave it once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad to go beyond the command of the Lord. And I must say only what the Lord says. Now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in the days to come. So in verses 10 through 11, we have Balak's response, his anger in verse 10, including striking his hands together. Now he could have struck Balaam, but he doesn't. So that's interesting. And also indicative of Balaam's courage here, verse 11, the command, again, out of anger, to leave at once and go home. Later in verse 11, I said, I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. He had made promises to him back in chapter 22, verses 13 and 14, but now he's reneging on that, and he's blaming God. That seems dangerous, especially after recent events. From Balaam's perspective, we have the application to obedience that can be costly, but it also might imply something about Balaam's initial motives that money is so prominently on the table in what Balak says here. Verses 12 through 14, Balaam's reply, basically, I told you so in verse 12. Verse 13, money didn't matter, at least now I must say what the Lord says. Perhaps this has been enhanced by his experience with the Spirit in verse 2. And this makes it more difficult to understand what comes later, that he rejects this experience to get Israel into trouble in chapters 25 and 31. And then verse 14, I'll return home, but only after a few more unsolicited oracles. These are for free, basically. The fourth oracle will be about what this people will do to your people. That's an uh uh-oh. But it also is in the days to come. Now, this can be a future reference, but usually... The references here in, to the final days are a messianic phrase, so they certainly have application both to this moment as well as to David and ultimately to Jesus Christ in his first and second comings. Let's read this fourth oracle, verses 15 through 19. Then Balaam spoke his message, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So, that opening in verses 15 and 16 is the same as we saw in verses 3 and 4, except it has the addition of who has knowledge from the Most High, but again, high language that is Spirit-inspired. Verse 17 is the point I made earlier about into the future. So, this seems to point to a much later time frame, making it much more likely to be about David and Jesus. Verse 17 ends with, a star will come out of Jacob. So, this could be a reference to Matthew 2 and Luke 1 and the star that appears there. It's also another reference we see in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Also got a scepter rising out of Israel. This is the language Jacob used in Genesis 49, 10 and talking about Judah. Of course, Jesus and David are descendants of Judah as well. There's also references to this in Psalm 45, 6 and in Amos chapter one, verses five and eight. And then of course, a ruler will come out of Jacob in verse 19, Again, that's a reference to Judah to David, and to Jesus as well. The punchline here, verses 17 through 19, will conquer, crush, and destroy Moab, Edom, and they will grow strong. And it's an appropriate end to the oracles because it finishes off the end of the story for Moab, which is what's at hand with Balaam versus Balak. But Balaam's not done. He's got three more oracles. We've had four so far. That will get us to a total of seven. We're going to skim these because the uh, details are harder to play with and i'll leave it to your reading verses 20 through 25 have those oracles the first is about the amalekites who are first among the nations whether that's a reference to ancestry or quality but they will come to ruin at last the other interesting thing about the word first is that we know they were the first to attack god's people when they came out out of egypt and they're first in opposition to god's will When you look at the Amalekites it's an interesting word study throughout the Old Testament but the initial opposition is in Exodus 17 verses 8 through 13. The second oracle here, the sixth overall, is about the Kenites. The dwelling place is secure but it will be destroyed and be taken captive by Asher, a reference to Assyria. This is a little bit interesting because the Kenites are later Israel's allies for a time and Jethro was a Kenite. This is Moses father-in-law and uh, big help to Moses and the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness. The third and final oracle here in the seventh overall is about Asher and Eber. Eber is actually a forerunner of the Hebrews. We know that back in Genesis 10 verses 21 and 22. The reference to Asher is often taken again to be Assyria, but it's also possible that it's some earlier people groups Not sure what to do with this prophecy. Scholars debate this. One is that it's a reference to the Philistines coming in and attacking early people. Uh, The second possibility that's popular is that the Greek and the Romans come in and whip up on the Assyrians after they've whipped up on other people. Matthew Henry takes this later line and says, Balaam, instead of cursing Israel, curses Amalek the first and Rome the last enemy. So if that's the way to interpret it, that's pretty cool that Amalek is first and Rome is last. All of these seem to have been fulfilled temporarily by King David, but then as Israel and Judah continue to fade, their capacity to beat and conquer these people also fades. And so this leads to messianic psalms and prophecies that invoke passages like this, for example, in Psalm 110. In any case, verse 25, Balaam and Balak go home and the event is over. So a few final comments about characters in the story. First of all, Balaam is obviously an intriguing character, and we have more to say about him in the next episode. Balak has impressive but misguided efforts. I think it points to our zeal and persistence. He's a pagan, but he's impressive in that way. Are we equally impressive in pursuing the true God? Speaking of God, we see his power and sovereignty here, his provision and sustenance, his protection and safety. And that he's primarily in the business of blessing and not cursing. As for us, if God can use Balaam and a donkey to speak truth, then what about us and those around us? And as for Moses and the people, we haven't talked about them in a while. It's interesting that they know nothing of this until they're told to write it as history. God mercifully protects them from what they know not, and here, even protects them from the knowledge of the attempted attack until after it's done. all of this, the biggest lessons to me are the deserved curses and the responses of mercy and grace. Despite the undeserving recipients, the NIV study Bible says, though the immediate enjoyment of the blessing will always depend on the faithfulness of his people, the ultimate realization of God's blessing is sure because of the character of God. Despite his judgment on his rebellious people, God is still determined to bring Israel into the land of promise. God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that you have a plan and you have promises for us as well. We pray that we would walk in obedience and holiness with you all the days of our life, in Jesus' name. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.